distinguished visitor lecture by Professor Tony Glider from the Graz University of Technology in Austria. Professor Glider is a renowned biotechnologist who leads a research team focused on protein and pathway expression and engineering. Tony is also the co-founder of the Austrian Centre of Industrial Biotechnology and founder of a university spin-off biotechnology company called Busy EU. Professor Glider and his team are uncovering great potential by using a yeast strain called Pichia pastoris as a tool for synthetic pathway expression and biological manufacturing of chemicals. This lecture was recorded on the 28th of June 2019 at QT's Gardens Point campus. We hope you enjoy this IFE podcast. Thanks, as I said, for the nice words, but I'm not CEO and CSO of ACIB anymore. So in 2014, after getting another five years funded, I decided to step out. So Bernd Nedetsky is now leading the research center. Um, but they had all the budget, which I still I was writing the proposals, and now it, it's renewed from 2020. They are completely on their own. Um, but it was nice to, to go back to academia again, do some more research, but also get more flexibility and enjoy the dynamics of small companies. I always like to work with Incenser, and this was a typical small company. Sometimes payments arrived late, but they always arrived. <laughs> and, and now I know the same thing, and oh, it's not... So I just had a conversation with Ian yesterday, so it's still the same. <laughs> Didn't change, but it, it's a very good relation we built up there. It was fun for us as well to work, and uh, also this work made a, made, a, made a major contribution to our further development, and uh, so was a kind of a decision point where I also decided I, I want to get this out to people and not only keep it in the freezer, or our tours after the PhD uh, finishes, they leave, uh, the freezer is cleaned up at Christmas and then everything is gone. Uh, and, and next year, people are uh, calling from companies, still want to have the tours. So then I said, okay, I'll build up busy, that's a, a complementary institution and then a nice tour to provide these tours. Uh, so I gave a talk about P450 just two, three days ago, and I will give another talk about protein expression generally, especially with Picher uh, in, in a few weeks here. So I thought to talk about something different, and that's a new direction where we want to go for uh, in Um we, we started to do some metabolic engineering by, uh, and uh, expressing biosynthetic pathways because we see huge potential for Pichia in this field, and it's just that people don't know that the potential is so big that that's not more used for, for these purposes. So it's about tools for synthetic pathway expression and engineering. Uh, or build on our basic tools we developed for Pichupa stories. And still, uh, the, the bottleneck is always the same, I say. It's protein expression, which is a bottleneck, a major bottleneck uh, in biomanufacturing. It's a, it's a bottleneck for getting a, uh, good economics uh, to, uh, to generate value of, of your research. Uh, you have, we have to have high productivity, but also high quality. But it's also a bottleneck in enzyme engineering because if you can't express very well, if you don't have reliable equal expression, you also can't do directed evolution. It's always a bottleneck, and uh, it's, it's a major step in all the pro in the developments to to get success in industrial biotechnology. And I always liked enzyme engineering, but I recognized early that people were less interested in mutants than in our skills to get the protein really produced on larger scale. And, and when we submitted paper, I was proud about all the rational design we did and a very nice enzyme variant. We said, that's a great stuff. 
And then the review, reviewer said, ah, it's great. That for the first time, this protein is really expressive. And that was the only thing. But that was an easy task for us because we used the right tools. But this was a big thing for people after 100 years of working with the protein to have it available for industrial scale production. So then I saw also the limitations. And I said, we will further improve these expression systems because we also had bottlenecks ourselves in our lab for, for enzyme engineering, especially for eukaryotic proteins, which are not easy to ex express in E. coli. So we were going for eukaryotic expression hosts. But why Picha pastoris and why not Baker's yeast? Uh, that's what many people ask. And uh, the better answer of my students is always, uh, our group is working on Pichia, so we worked on Pichia. <laughs> uh, other people say, we like Pichia, it's such a nice system. It's not a good answer, I say. And that there's a good reason to work with Pichia. Uh, it's, again, value. Uh, and we, just to show you one typical example, I would say, if you compare different expression systems, that's what we did for um, uh, cytochrome P450 expression for human enzymes. And we expressed the human cytochrome P450-2D6 in different expression hosts, always the same construct to have some kind of comparison. It's a full-length protein with an N-terminal membrane anchor incorporated, co-expression of uh, reductase and the P450 domain. And we expressed in different E. coli cells, so just like classically BL21, but also the better regulated LIMO cells, which uh, were described to be more efficient in, in membrane protein expression. We tried Baker's yeast, which was a big success at this, store, at this time when we started that. It was about almost 20 years ago. Um, and so there were these uh, yeast microsomal preparations for P450s, and then we tried Bichia, and we also tried Aerobia because we thought uh, the, our final goal is to apply uh, whole cell catalysts in biphasic systems because mostly you have solubility problems. If you want to um, do steroid hydroxylation, for example, the biggest challenge is the solubility of testosterone in water is almost zero solubility. So we have to apply the solvents, and the optimal... Um, process would be a, a biphasic system, an emulsion system, and uh, Yerobia is used to grow in biphasic systems, in emulsion systems, so it should be a robust catalyst. So that's what we tried, and indeed, Yerobia was a good host, it was much better than Baker's yeast, uh, but when we compare expression, and in this case, uh, the data show whole cell activities, so how many micro units, uh, milli units we have uh, per gram cell drive weight. But we also compared if you lyse cells, if you get the microsomal preparations, how much activity do we get out of cells. But you can see clearly here, Pichia was by far better. There are two different constructs, so it also showed a regular expression is just described here as Pichia pastoris, but an optimized one is where we have three copies of both the reductase and the heme domain uh, incorporated into the genome, and then we get more activity in this case. So we also did different ratios, uh, and it also showed that the ratio between the reductase and P450 is highly important to get more activity, and uh, not only to get one of the protein which you can measure, like the P450, but really get activity. So this clearly showed P here is a very successful expression system, and that's the same with many uh, enzymes we do. We uh, collaborate with industry to make really proteins on large scale. We can now secrete more than 20 grams uh, protein per, per liter with P here. We, we do 28 grams per liter of intercellular protein, so it's really huge amounts of protein you get. Similar to filamentous fungi, but much easier to work with and short processes as well. So that's a good reason to work with Pichia. Another good reason to uh, work with Pichia is new directions, new opportunities, as I said. And we made some benchmark studies. 
Uh, one is about carotene expression and violacine expression. That's just model spars. It's just nice, colorful models. And I will talk a little bit more about those just to demonstrate our tools on that. But we also did some applications where we evaluated our bidirectional promoter strategy to um, balance co-expression of uh, different proteins in Pichia. That's on the left lower corner here. Uh, that was done together with Manos Biosynthesis in Boston. And this was done for Daxadayin biosynthesis. And again, with one experiment, just making one cloning experiment, one screening, we got higher activity and more yield of Daxadayin than they got after years of engineering of, of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. It's just a more powerful host for terpenoid production than Saccharomyces. Um, the same a colleague of mine in the same institute, Harald Bichler, uh, together with a spin-off of DSM, they did some engineering to make Nut Katun in uh, in Bichler uh, and in other yeast. Again, with the first experiments, uh, with a, uh, one year of a, of a PhD thesis, basically they got higher yields with Nut Katun after years of engineering of, of Baker's yeast. So it's a very powerful host if you have... Uh, to apply oxidative path pathways, and especially if you have to hydroxylate, because Bichia is also producing a lot of NADPH, which is used for, for these uh, enzymes which do the decoration of, of your final compounds. So what is Bichia? Uh, so there's quite some confusion going around. So Bichia today is not Bichia anymore. Uh, if you look here to the branch, it's Bichia membrane faciens, which is a typical, it's a type strain for Bichia. But uh, what we are used to work with, uh, the old Bichia system, commercialized by Invitogen um, and, and developed originally by Philips Petroleum, is Comagatella uh, Puffii. It's even not Comagatella Pastoris, uh, which, which makes it even more confusing. So it's Comagatella Puffii. So the Comagatella branch is the one which is interesting for us for industrial biotechnology. Then there's another one which was previously called Hansenora, which is now Ogataea. So very fancy new names, uh, difficult to spell, but that's the uh, state of the art today. And Pichia is not what we know as Pichia. So this uh, systematics was described by Kritzmann um, some years ago, and that's what we keep. But still, we publish with Pichia Pastoris, but we have to name it. It's now Comagatella Puffy. At some point, we probably switch completely. Um, so there are several industrial strains around, and basically all industrial strains uh, commercially used now are derived from uh, a Philips Petroleum strain, a patented strain developed for single-cell protein production in California. Um, and at, uh, since this was not commercially viable after the oil crisis, uh, they decided to develop it as an expression system for recombinant proteins that was done at the Salk Institute by Sevier. Uh, and now there are several platforms around. The first one was a typical in vitro chain platform with GS115 strain and the X33, which is called wild type, but it's not a wild type. It's a re-engineered engineered strain. It's a GS115, which is uh, modified back to have a wild type phenotype, but it's not a wild type. Then we developed a an own platform based on a uh, strain, which is the same strain, but deposited in another strain collection, CBS uh, 7435. So at this time, it was easy to get this strain uh, without paying any license fees. Now they took it out to avoid that anyone just can take this freedom to operate platform. It, it doesn't exist anymore in the strain platform. We still have it in this institute, and we developed our so-called FTO platform, which is commercially used also by VTO Technology. It's a spin-off of my first PhD student, which is still uh, active in Graz. Um, 
When I uh, stepped out of ACIB, found it busy, I decided to join forces with Biogrammatics because they also developed an independent strain line, which is now, I think, the most modern uh, platform. And we, we decided to work on this platform together because it's the most efficient platform. It's not containing any killer plasmids anymore. And killer plasmids make about 20-25% of total DNA in, in big year. And that's just complicating our work in approval procedures, complicating our work in genome resequencing, in strength characterization, in targeting specifically. So it's just a better platform to work with this uh, killer plasmid free platform. That's now the BC platform or biogrammatics or based on two strains, which we call BG10 and BG11, which is a wild type strain and, and the MAD-S strain. So that's just as an introduction, which strain lines basically exist. And we can discuss much more about these things and about the tools. But the first approach is we did for metabolic engineering in Pichia was uh, driven um, by a, a group um, in an EU project just years ago where we tried to optimize the flux through the central metabolism first, um, just letting Pichia grow faster to produce uh, more energy at the, in the end. The hope was to produce more products and we overexpressed uh, phosphofructokinase and uh, also overexpressed the second gene which is the alternative oxidase to burn NADH uh, to, to increase the flux through the central metabolism, which was kind of successful. The cells were really growing faster. The, the difference in productivity was not clearly visible for us. But at that time, I have to say, we also did not have the tools as, as now to really characterize systematically everything in chemostat cultures to have a reliable comparison based on growth rate comparison or keeping growth rates constant. Uh, but another uh, interesting side effect was there with the uh, overexpression of alternative oxidase, we were burning NDH. Um, and so this was very nice for oxidative processes using ADHs. But then we also recognized you know, the other direction is more interesting. People are usually more interested in getting more NDH than burning NDH. So then we designed another strain, said let's use the, the potential of pastoris to regenerate NADH very efficiently from single carbon atoms by using the methanol uh, oxidation pathway. So if we cut off uh, biomass production by deleting the two dihydroxyacetone synthase genes, we can focus the whole pathway for methanol uh, methanol metabolization to the oxidation to final CO2. And what Bichia is doing there, it's two steps of oxidation where two times NAD plus is regenerated to NADH. So at the end, we generate two molecules of NADH from burning one uh, carbon atom from, from methanol, which is much more efficient than using glucose with glucose dehydrogenase, where you use one carbon, uh, six carbon atom uh, molecule to get one NDPH molecule. So it's, it's just less efficient in biocatalysis. That's what we did. Uh, just deleted these two dust chains and then we did some application examples and we took one of the fastest uh, alcohol dehydrogenase, it's a butane diol dehydrogenase, and compared a basic strain. What you see here is just 49 individual transformants. So it's Basically, one construct is the platform strains and the wild type, so the wild type strain and the engineered strain with the double dust deletion. And then in, in orange, you see uh, its individual strains, uh, which were um, where the wild type strain was transformed with a, a construct to overexpress PDH. Uh, and then we measured activity. And we, when we did the same thing with the same plasmid, same expression vector for the PDH. Um, then you see much higher activity for all individual transformants. So the whole 
we call it activity landscape is higher. Why do we do activity landscapes? Because we integrate into the genome, targeting is not always 100%, so transformers behave differently. If you compare just one transformer, you don't learn very much about the real uh, behavior. You can't compare strains. You could characterize it, uh, sequence the genome if the localization is fine, if, if copy numbers are the same. The, the easier part is just to uh, compare landscapes. And there's a nice publication from Tom with, with your group anyway about comparing uh, that, that landscapes are really giving some indication about the general behavior of the system. Also helps us very much in, in arguing recently, so we don't have to do all the strain characterizations anymore since that paper is out. Um, another application we did for engineering, re-engineering the metabolism was uh, uh, regulatory circuit engineering. Since we recognized people were very much interested in uh, expressing proteins uh, without using methanol. And still, for a long time, the methanol induction system was the strongest system being available for PQP stores. And we can use new systems now, but all these strains with the AOX promoter and methanol induction exist, but people still would like to use it without methanol. So the simplest approach was to develop a system where we can replace methanol by other things. And the idea was to just to replace it by the transcription factor, which is essentially, it's not methanol which is inducing the AOX promoter directly as a chemical. Methanol induces somehow the expression of transcription factors which bind to the AOX promoter as an activator and then they are activating the AOX promoter. Then we said let's just express these transcription factors by other tools and we use D-repression. So just reducing the glucose feed um, opens um, the transcription from, from certain promoters. We use these promoters, put it in front of the transcription factors and we put this plasmid, which you see in the middle, as an activated plasmid in addition into the existing AOX expression constructs. And then uh, just reducing the carbon source feed, glycerol or um, glucose feed, then the activator uh, was expressed. The transcription factor binds to the AOX promoter and starts expression without really using methanol. So that's what we did with three transcription factors, MXR1, MIT1, uh, and there was another one, MPP1. And we, we tried it with several proteins, which was very successful. But in this case, we also tried it with a beta-carotene uh, biosynthesis pathway. And you see, if we overexpress MIT1 without using methanol, the cells get orange. So this really works well, and we can replace methanol by overexpression by this transcription factor. So let's go to these pathways itself. Beta-carotene I mentioned as one model pathway. Uh, so one, one example already where we used that. So that's a nice pathway. It exists. It was known that it can be expressed in Pichia, but it was also known that you can express this pathway in Baker's yeast, in E. coli. So it's a simple pathway, but still not too simple because the product is toxic. So if you express too much of the pathway genes and you make too much product, the cells simply die. That's what we see in E. coli. It's, it's difficult to get uh, transformants. They don't grow very well. Same we see with Baker's yeast. Um, so it's good that it causes some difficulties, but it's also good to know that basically it should work. If you just get it expressed, you should see some orange cells. It's only four genes, which is still nice because you don't need sophisticated tools. It's easy to put it on one expression plasmid. The constructs are still not too big. So we tried this, and since in literature it was reported it works, we tried just the same way as everyone did it before, just using... A few times, uh, uh, the gap promoter uh, for expression, for constitutive expression, is the easiest approach. 
That's what we did, and we got orange cells, but what you can see on the other plates, using the same constructs, every transformant looks different. If you played it out, you also see sometimes it's a little bit shiny, it's a little bit white, and, and sometimes more yellow, sometimes more reddish. Uh, and in this case, below, you also see orange cells and white cells overgrowing it, so it looks like a contamination. But it's not a contamination, it's just showing that this construct is incredibly instable. It's not completely unexpected, because... If you did, uh, when we did PCR analysis, just looking for the presence of each individual gene, the four genes of the pathway, we also saw in the strain, which is on top, which is not too productive, uh, that's on the left side, we see all four genes for PCR bands. If you look to the right side, which is the other strain, which uh, shows these white cells, if we took one of the white cells overgrowing, we saw just one gene is in there, the other three genes are missing. So why are they missing? So our explanation was relatively easy. So we thought we have this construct. We use uh, four times a gap promoter, four times the same terminator. So in close proximity, we have uh, identical sequences in the genome. And although Bichia is known to be quite stable and not to show very easy or efficient homologous recombination, it probably just recombines. It's thousands of base pairs which are identical. So it just shows a recombination to get rid of it, especially if... Um, Selection goes for that purpose because it's a toxic product, so cells don't grow very well if they maintain the expression pathway. So let's just get rid of it. So that's even stronger in Baker's yeast where homologous recombination is very efficient, so it's quickly kicked out. So what you see in all these papers is just proof of concept. You see the pathway can express, and then they report about micrograms per uh, liter, micrograms product per, per liter, because it's stable for some time. If you put it in a shake flask, at the end, you see some product, but what people usually don't describe is that after two hours, the plasmids even don't exist anymore, and you still grow it 24 hours. If you go to the bioreactor, it's the same. You have a heterogeneous population in the end with all different genetic constructs due to these genetic instabilities. So how can we make it more stable? So the easiest idea was just to use different promoters, uh, not use the same promoters. That's the easiest idea, but most work in the lab. Uh, so we were looking for similar promoters, and we also said if we induce it with methanol, we also can grow biomass first, then there's no expression, so no toxicity, and then induce, have a short period of production, and the cells can die, can lose the plasma, but let's kick off production. But still we want to use different promoters to have it as stable as possible in this production phase. So the most obvious uh, to find similar promoters with high strength and similarly regulated with one inductor was going again to the methanol um, utilization pathway because this we, we saw in the transcript uh, analysis with uh, DNA arrays it's about 2,000 genes which are regulated if you induce with methanol. So we were looking at these genes, it's Tom who was mainly doing this work and he looked uh, by array analysis and in the transcript moment, found a series of different possibly methanol-induced promoters, but also T-repressed promoters. We cloned these genes, tried it in all different combinations, and we put the four genes of the beta-carotene pathway in combination with four different promoters uh, and four different terminators. And having all the combination was important because not all promoters had the same strength and we didn't know which gene had to be expressed strong or weak, and it made a difference. As you can see on, on the lower side of this slide, uh, orange means it's beta-carotene, red means it's, um, it's uh, lycopene, which is a precursor of, of beta-carotene. So if you don't um, have a strong um, 
pulling force from, uh, in the pathway by expressing the large gene very efficiently, uh, intermediates like lycopene accumulate. So then you see different products. So it's important to balance the pathway the right way to get the maximum of product and get the right product. So you see the combination one was best in this case, and if you want to have more lycopene, uh, version three would be better, for example. So it, it really depends on the promoters and the combination, how it looks like. And the second effect, if you can see it clearly in the plate, but it looked pretty homogeneous. Uh, it was really a stable construct, so our idea that we can avoid instabilities by avoiding identical sequences really worked out, and it can balance the pathway by using different combinations. So that was a known approach, but it's just a lot of work, and that's typically what companies like Ginkgo Bioworks, Emory's, they do it, um, but they buy robotics. They have millions to invest in robotics. We don't have millions to invest in robotics. We still have cheap master tools. Sometimes we say, well, lab slaves, <laughs> sometimes they're caught uh, doing it in the summer internships, but in the end, we are quite limited uh, in, in pathway construction. So we had to look for other ideas, and since we don't have millions, we have to maybe be more smart <laughs> and have at least smart students with brilliant ideas. So one idea was to make everything more compact, facilitate cloning by using bidirectional promoters again. Then we use less DNA elements to establish a pathway. So all the cloning is more efficient, the constructs get smaller, and we also can add more genes on the same plasmid, for example. Uh, typical um, promoters we can use here are the histone promoters. They're very nice because they're just about 400 bases. Um, and 400 bases and to work in both directions is, is, is really brilliant for PIKIA. So if you use a gap promoter, AUX promoter, you have between 500 and 1,000 bases, and two elements goes close to 2,000 bases to direct two genes. In this case, we have 400 bases to direct expression and transcription of two genes. So using these bidirectional <coughs> promoters and also uh, different terminator sequences, we could make the pathway more compact, facilitate cloning, uh, reduce the time for making the construct, and we also could get stable constructs because we did not uh, repeat any sequences, so repetitive sequences were completely avoided. And it works out, and again, you see, depending on the construct, we get different colors, uh, which is a nice thing in beta-carotene, so if, if we don't have the right balance in, uh, in the pathway, we get more uh, reddish colonies because we accumulate lycopene, or it gets more kind of yellow, uh, bright orange if really mostly beta-carotene is produced. So by changing the order, making different combinations between bidirectional promoters and genes, we can optimize the pathway and we get stable pathways again. But still, it's, it's a compromise. It's easier than having all the different constructs, but it's not easy. So E. coli is much easier because you just can take one promoter, one terminator, make a polycystronic construct, put everything in line, and just put the individual ribosomal binding sites in between, uh, which can be tuned to, to uh, tune the pathway. That's basically not possible to be here. There's one system described, which is iris sequences, which we could put in between. Uh, but we gave up the idea quite early because all papers indicated iris uh, works, but the second gene is usually much less expressed. It's not very efficient, and if you really want to express four or five genes, and the goal at the end was to express 20 genes. So we worked together with uh, GSK and Sanofi in a large uh, European project, and the, the idea was to develop tools for expression of pathways with 20 genes, because if you want to make terpenes, for example, natural compounds, it's usually about 15 to 20 genes which you need to have the fully, completely decorated molecule at the end. 
So this was not the, the approach which was too much promising, but then Martina in our lab found another opportunity. She found uh, an alternative to iris sequences is a viral 2A sequences. Uh, so do you all know the 2A sequences, these peptide sequences, ribosomal skipping? So it's not that common, I think, but that's a mechanism of viruses. Um, it's a foot-mouth disease, I think, it's in, in, in swine. Uh, so it's a viral uh, disease, which is really nasty. Um, but this virus has a, uh, a mechanism to make fusion proteins uh, in, uh, in its host, in, in the eukaryotic cell. And these fusion proteins at the end are split and uh, individual proteins. And originally people thought this is a self-cleaving peptide linker, which is in between the reading frames, but it's not. It's a different process called ribosomal skipping. These sequences, these peptides, just have a difficult secondary structure due to a proline which is in there. And due to the secondary structure, the ribosomes have some difficulties in continuing translation. So they store for a while. And since when ribosome stores, usually the peptide chain is, is leaving uh, the active site of the ribosomes. But since there is no stop codon, um, they still uh, stay on the transcript. And at some point, they continue translation. So that's called ribosomal skipping. Just due to the st secondary structure, the first part of the protein leaves, and the second part is continued. The only disadvantage you have there, why it's not so easy to apply it for pharmaceutical proteins and other things, is you have some scars. You have some uh, C-terminal additional peptides and N-terminal additional peptides. But we can deal with that. We can introduce additional cleavage sites, CAX2 sites, or uh, ubiquitin cleaving sites, and those things to, to have clean ends at the end. But by that way, you can make one construct with one promoter, one terminator, and express two proteins uh, from the same construct without having additional promoters. So that's really saving space uh, and time in cloning because it's just a short peptide leader, uh, removing the ATG, removing the stop code, and putting this linker in between. So papers described that this works for two proteins, and the difference was it's working pretty well because the second protein is expressed almost equally than the first one. So these systems exist for many different eukaryotes. You can use a marker, for example, GFP in the second. And then if you use GFP, you can see that GFP is expressed very well, but then you also know that the first one is translated very well because otherwise uh, GFP would not glow up in, in the cells. So it's a reporter, but it's also used, used for selection markers. So you can put the selection marker in there, and only if you have strong resistance, for example, means also the first transcript is, is transcribed very well. Otherwise, uh, it would not work to transcribe the second one. It was described that you can express also two or three genes, and it, it was shown that expression levels are quite equal. Uh, but it was also known that after the third gene, uh, expression was incredibly decreasing, uh, very low, and uh, in Baker's yeast, it still showed that you can use this for expression, I think even for beta-carotene uh, expression uh, production, but then not going any further. Then we thought, okay, Baker's yeast is doing some homologous recombination. Again, if you use a 2A sequence, it's, it's long enough to show homologous recombination in Baker's yeast because that's very efficient there. But if you use Pichia, maybe you get more stable constructs. Maybe we can add more genes. And Pichia is also very robust. Maybe let's try more genes. And so then... Martina tried to make the whole beta-carotene pathway uh, with an AOX promoter, terminator, and all four genes uh, linked with different 2A sequences. And we did the same peptides, but different codon optimization for the different peptides. By that, we also avoided homologous recombination in Pichia, and in addition, the sequences were quite short. 
And we were surprised it worked pretty well. It was really working very well, and we got uh, very stable clones, as you can see here, a lot of beta-carotene production. And depending also on the order of genes, and uh, which you can see here, um, so no, in this case, it was comparison with four times IUX promoter, or uh, just this order, we, we saw a little bit accumulation of lycopene here, but if you change the order of the genes, uh, still, the first gene is better expressed because just think about the transcript length. If you add four genes, the transcript gets very long. So there is some preliminary uh, termination of transcription in the cell. So the last part of the whole cassette is not transcribed same, with the same efficiency as the first one. But this gives us a chance to tune expression again by just changing the order of the genes for just keeping one promoter and one terminator. So that's something we optimized later on and worked pretty well. Uh, for example, with viola-sane, that's another example where we add five chains because we said we have to go further. Can we express also five chains if four work that well? And viola-sane is also very nice because depending on how the pathway goes, uh, we can accumulate different intermediates, and all these intermediates or side products have different colors. One is more purple, one more bluish, one greenish, depending on the side products. So this indicates very well if the pathway flux goes straight to the product or if you have any uh, bottleneck or accumulation in between. Um, in this case, we, we even developed a system for combinatorial optimization. So a master student from Sanofi was working in our, in our group uh, just to have overlapping sequences on the two A areas and we did combinatorial Gibson assembly uh, and then did a library expression and then just were screening for the optimal strain, in this case by color formation, but you also can screen with other methods, for example. So it's nice, it's, it's a simple tour, and one master student could evaluate many different pathways uh, because it's much less work to construct these things. So five genes work well, so, but five genes is not enough, so our partners wanted to have 20 genes. But think about 20 genes, put it in one plasmid, uh, 20 times 1,000 bases, which gets incredibly large plasmids, or the transformation gets very inefficient, so we thought to do it, originally we thought doing it by applying two or three different plasmids, just split, split the pathway into three different transformations. But now with the 2A sequences, we said, that's possible. We don't need 20 promoters, 20 terminators. Uh, 20 genes could be put on, on a single uh, pathway cassette or at least a few more. So the easiest for us was to take the two pathways, the 4-gene pathway for beta-carotene combined with the 5-gene pathway for violacine, because we had a nice color for the one, a nice color for the other one, so we, no sophisticated HPLC methods. Just look to the color if something happens, and it happens. So it got brownish as expected, as if you do your experiments with your child, uh, children. So if they mix all colors, what you get at the end is just brownish. Yeah. Same thing happened here. And again, if we took one promoter and one terminator and just changed the order of the one model and the second model, you get a more yellowish cells or more black and purple cells, but the end it's brown because everything is expressed, the whole pathway works well. The same thing was evaluated also on the transcript level, and we also could see that the virulacine pathway genes were better expressed if we had the virulacine in advance. So also with the nine genes, uh, if you change the order, we can tune the pathway, and the first ones are better expressed than the last ones. So one promoter, one terminator, and nine genes changing the order can be used for pathway optimization. And 
something I don't show here, but we always thought that's a nice discovery tool. So we don't need the robotics of Emery's anymore. Now one student can easily construct all the pathways and try new pathways and uh, explore the universe of, of metabolites. But it's only a discovery tool. At the end, we still need to make this individual construct with individual promoters to have stable and very efficient and, path, uh, and balanced pathways. That's what we thought. But actually, it was not true. Uh, when we compared with our best system with the five different methanol inducer promoters with a 2A system, we could see that our cells we could get with the 2A um, linkers uh, produced more efficiently than the individual constructs. Um, and one reason might be that um, this ribosomal skipping is not 100% efficient. Uh, so it's a majority of the protein is skipped and cleaved, or individual proteins, but sometimes the ribosomes just ignore this loop in the, in the secondary structure, and they just continue translation, and then you get fusion proteins, and you don't know where you get it. Uh, but it's randomly distributed, but for some parts of the pathway, we get fusion proteins, and that's kind of a scaffolding which happens by purpose. And again, if you just screen for that, uh, what's the most efficient construct, we also get a pathway with... Uh, nine individual proteins, but also some as a fusion protein. Uh, maybe some, sometimes more of this fusion, sometimes the other, and if you change your order, we get more fusion proteins of the one and the other. And this gives us, I think, some scaffolding uh, effect. This is why the 2A path is at the end, surprisingly, worked much better even than our individual designs. So it got also a production system, and something how we played around and then we thought how to go to 20 genes if we can express nine genes and the easiest approach was if you know that one promoter element works for nine uh, then we can just again use these bidirectional constructs put one DNA sequence in between two times nine or ten genes uh, and then we drive expression again with one DNA element for two times nine constructs and this still should give stable constructs um, Transcripts. So it's two transcripts now we produce, but still one promoter element driving that pathway. We did not try this because we didn't have the right pathways uh, so far, and um, so we think maybe in future we work on really interesting pathways in some collaborations. Uh, but in principle, it should work. Uh, there's no reason why this should not work also with, with 20 genes. Uh, so another reason I talked to Rob yesterday to talk about this, that's really something very uh, fascinating, where we think is high potential. And I'm also presenting this because there's no industrial collaboration at the moment. That's our future, I think, where we should go. And I'm really happy to collaborate in this field and do some joint developments and drive this field forward, I think, with all the tools we have. So I talked about different promoters, but also strain engineering is very important. Uh, to have a most efficient uh, strategy at the end. Uh, you could see it with the cofactor balancing, for example, which is important not only for biocatalysis, but also for uh, metabolic engineering. And we developed different methods originally. It was difficult to have uh, genome engineering efficiently done in Pichia. We then developed the KU70 deletion strain, which facilitated everything. Targeting was much more efficient. We still use this strain a lot, but since CRISPR-Cas came up, uh, this changed our world, and um, we also tried to adapt CRISPR-Cas very early uh, for engineering. In the end, we also have to combine it with some process engineering, and since we can't go to bioreactors in every case, uh, we adapted a very simple system, which is not that expensive than other systems like bioreactors or other things, 
um, we developed a, or not developed, we adapted a system from Presence, which has some uh, fluorophore spots in, in, in shake flasks. And then we have this device uh, on, the, on the shaker, and via, so there's a light source in there. So it's measuring fluorescence from oxygen and from pH and also cell densities can be measured. And via Bluetooth, the signal is transferred to a laptop. So it's a very simple system uh, adapted to a shake flask uh, culture on the, on the regular shaker. And via laptop and Bluetooth, you can uh, see online uh, growth rates, uh, pH development, and oxygen content in shake flasks. So there's a nice system to... Uh, still reduce the amount of clones for screening before we go to the direct. Uh, that's what we do for, for process optimization. Um, but let's go to CRISPR-Cas. So genome engineering is important, but it was not that easy. And especially in Pichia, we saw homologous recombination is difficult because these overhangs you see here, they needed to be about 1,000 bases. So it's not like in Baker's yeast where you just add 20 bases based on a PCR primer, and then you can make a simple knockout. We need longer overhangs, and even there, efficiency is very low. So in some cases, we saw it's just about one out of 500 or one out of uh, 1,000 transformers uh, where we see an integrated marker really do, does a gene replacement. So some loci are really hardly accessible. So we needed more efficient tools, and CRISPR is one of those tools. Um, so the easiest approach, we thought, is just take the Baker-Seas design. That's what we started in 2014. Uh, because there were these first publications coming up, and, and we said maybe if it works in Baker's yeast, they also use a human enzyme, let's just try it the same way in Bichia, and maybe it works out. It did not work. Unfortunately, it's as usual. If you make the quick experiment, you better should not touch it and not start it, because if you don't have the time to co um, complete the experiments, better don't spend time on the quick experiments. But we had a very smart master student there, and she was very interested in getting this running, and she did a lot of combinations of experiments, and we had, so the two tasks, we had to get the Cas9 expressed in Pichia, we had to get the Cas9 into the nucleus, but we also had to retain the RNA, the guide RNA in the nucleus, and not getting it transported out. So we didn't have the right tools, the right promoters, we did not have nuclear targeting sequences for Pichia, that's what uh, Astrid developed here. But we also did not have the right promoters to express RNA, which uh, is not polyethylated and kept and transported out of the, the nucleus. Uh, so we also had to optimize here. Um, so we tried different promoters, which were kind of obvious. Uh, so polymerase 3 promoters, for example, but they did not work. We did codon optimization for Cas9. We also tried the bacterial proteins and the human proteins. In the end, you have to do all the experiments in a combinatorial way. And this was, at the end, 95 different experiments, 95 designs for evaluating CRISPR-Cas. And in the end, it was six constructs which worked out at the end. Uh, so six of 95. Uh, and I know that several groups were trying hard with Pichia to get CRISPR-Cas running at the same time. They failed and said, no, it's not adaptable to Pichia, and it's just hard work. Sometimes if you have a dedicated master student and doing hard work and, and doing it in a smart way, if, if you focus, it works out. So we got it to work. Uh, at the end, the construct with a human uh, Cas9 optimization worked better than the Pichia. What we could see here on the left, this was codon optimized for Pichia. At the end, we could not get any transformers because simply Cas9 probably was toxic for the cells. It has some side effect. It did not work out. If we take the uh, bacterial Cas9, we had a high transformation rate shown with the blue uh, bars. 
but with the gray ones, it's a targeting efficiency. We had no knockout. So probably it was expressed, but didn't have any activity in Bichir. Or if what not was not expressed at all, I don't know. But uh, human gene probably showed medium expression, so this worked out well, and the targeting efficiency was quite quite high, sometimes up to 100%. So this was an easy locus. We just targeted the glycerol kinase locus, which is easy to screen because cells don't grow on glycerol anymore. It's a gut minus strain, which we developed this way. It's an easy locus, so between 80 and 100% efficiency. We also characterized what happens after CRISPR-Cas uh, engineering. So it's mostly one base pair deletion which happens, um, and so we, we here it's shown with on top with three different guide RNAs. That's our standard. We apply three different guide RNAs for the same locus just to have different choices for for engineering. We, if you change a guide RNA, sometimes different things happen. In this case, it was a higher rate of two base pair deletions with a guide RNA three. The guide RNA two it was. Yeah, always one base pair deletion. We also analyzed the strains uh, which had no effect, uh, which showed normal growth, and we were looking if anything happened there because we thought still CRISPR should work. It's a 100% efficiency, and if it is in there, something should happen. And we looked at the gene, and then we could see that we have, in many cases, either no mutation, that's okay, but we also saw mutations in this case, but there was just a three base pair deletion, for example. So depending on the guide RNA, where you put it, you also should take care that you really target loci, which are important for the protein function. Uh, kicking out just any base in a loop uh, doesn't matter, maybe, if you kick out three bases because you don't cause any frame shift, and then the protein is still expressed and still functional. Um, so that's what usually happens. But there are also loci which are much more difficult. And as mentioned, the OCH1 locus, which is the locus responsible for hypermanipulation. This one um, was difficult to assess. Uh, so many people tried before and, and failed. And again, just by hard work, we found out how it could work. And the trick was basically to find out the phenotype. So for the OCH1 deletion, several students in our lab tried. They didn't find anything. And then one student said, OK, let's use a KU70 strain. Then it should be more efficient. And if he used the KO70 strain, he could get a few transformants. And by PCR screening, he could find out which had the deletions. And the funny thing was, this uh, phenotype was very strange. And that's usually what you don't pick. So if you have a transformation in the phenotype looks very strange, you usually don't take it for colony PCR. And so people always avoided the really useful clones and took the nice clones, which had no effect. Yeah? But now, from the KU70 experiment, he knew how the phenotype should look like. Then he went back again uh, for a regular strain, a regular platform strain, was just looking for the few colonies with a strange phenotype, was analyzing those, and then we could see that it works also with a regular strain. But with CRISPR-Cas, it's got much more efficient, but you also see that's a difficult locus. Guide RNA1 did not work, guide RNA2 didn't work, but guide RNA3 worked. And it had about 50% efficiency. So about 50% of all transformants had a uh, frame shift in the OCH1 strain. So big progress. Uh, just trying three guide RNAs is very simple. It's one simple experiment. At least here we could get uh, a high number of clones where the gene was disrupted. And that's also something we use in the future. So I said to Rob, we, we just got a new grant for a new uh, called Christian Doppler Laboratory for Bichia strain development. It's a seven years project. And we uh, will target about 1,000 genes in, B in the Bichia genome. So we want to make it a knockout library 
uh, most regulatory genes and uh, will knock out in the next one and a half years about 1,000 genes in, in Pichia by CRISPR-Cas engineering. Uh, I still wanted to introduce this slide because I saw multiplexing or something <laughs> here on, on the river. Um, so let's talk about multiplexing. <laughs> but it's a different kind of multiplexing. So it's multiplexing, so deleting or inactivating several reading frames at the same time. So that's something we tried with two easily followable markers. It's a gut mi uh, minus, which does not grow on Crisor, but also the AOX deletion, which shows slow growth on Methanor. And what you can see here, cells grow well on minimal media with glucose. It's a top slide. But you also can see if we do this multiplexing, so making both deletions at the same time, you see a little bit different pattern. But you can see that many cells don't grow anymore. Also, the efficiency is very high in multiplexing. We can get double knockouts in one uh, step, also with Pichapastoris. Uh, so a smaller fraction shows just a single gene deletion. Uh, or inactivation, but in many cases we get a double knockout. Again, depending on the combination of guide RNAs, so we still recommend to use several guide RNAs or in different combinations to have an efficient multiplexing for Pichapastoris. But basically it works out. Um, we also did multiplexing in close proximity, and that's a nice method to inactivate or remove later, la larger parts of the genome. In this case, we just remove three kilobases in the genome, for example, by putting two guide RNAs um, between the two reading frames of the two um, genes, the two dust genes. So basically, the whole promoter region was removed. It's just the reading frames remaining there. Again, the combination of uh, two different guide RNAs worked pretty well there. What I didn't show here, so we also have more recent work where we do uh, homologous recombination, so also replacement of genes. This does not work in the wild-type strain background because it's usually lethal. Uh, and, and still, uh, non-homologous recombination uh, dominates in Pichia. Uh, uh, no, sorry. Um, repair by non-homologous end joining uh, dominates. This means if we do uh, double strain break with CRISPR-Cas, and then we provide donor DNA. It's not integrating because a repair mechanism to do homologous end joining, non-homologous end joining is so efficient that before there's any integration by homologous DNA, it's just repaired. But if you use a KO70 strain where we reduce this non-homologous end joining process, we can have very efficient um, insertion of genes and, and replacement of genes by uh, homologous recombination. So we can combine CRISPR-Cas with the KU70 strain, which is a very efficient system now really to do gene editing and single-base editing in Pichipa stories. So what's the application? One of the first applications for engineering of strains is uh, improving our P450 whole cell catalysts. Um, and in this case, we did it also with peroxidase, uh, and, but also with P450s, and we just uh, targeted a series of genes. And you can see if we do additional genome engineering in addition to overexpression of these genes, we can get a whole landscape, sometimes low expression, but also some of the transformers get higher expression if we do additional genome engineering. So that's, I think, the future where we want to focus not only on optimizing promoters, but also combining it with changed genomes, inactivating specific genes, or also do random deletion, and also focusing on transcription factors, for example, to reach random effects. So to, just to summarize, at the end, uh, an optimized production strain needs several components, and we do engineering of expression cassettes, 
bidirectional promoters, polysystonic expression or polysystonic-like expression with the two A sequences. We still do a lot of promoter engineering. Uh, it's not the end. So people say, now we have these strong promoters. Why use any more promoters? Any new promoter which shows a different regulatory behavior is an enrichment in the, in the toolbox. So you never know what's working best. Sometimes it's slow induction, sometimes faster induction, sometimes tightly repressed, stronger repressed. We need the combinations for several genes. We still need more promoters, and that's what we still continue. But we also have a new focus on strain engineering, which I think will be the future at the end. Put both things together, which gives us the optimized production strain and as well as the services we provide to industry. So conclusions, we have a lot of tools now. I think time is right for pathway engineering. Bichia is by far the better host than Baker's yeast. I would never touch Baker's yeast if I do terpenoid engineering or things like that. I don't know why people still use it. It's simply because they are used to that. I think that's the only reason. Uh, there's no reason, no one could explain to me so far why using Baker's yeast instead, just in case of simplicity. Uh, and it's a favorable host, I think, especially for oxidative pathways, not only for enzyme expression. But the other conclusion I said was also that uh, we have to provide these tools, so I found it busy, and that's my, uh, my farm uh, there. It's still a silent place, and that's also the location. And so it's funny I mentioned because um, I applied for a European Union project in the end, uh, the whole project was granted, but the EU officer wanted to kick out uh, BC from the from the project because they recognized if they Googled on Google Maps, they found the location of our companies in the middle of nowhere. So this can't be a serious company. Just get out. <laughs> they didn't want to accept us. And so we had to fight that we get at least a secondment. We don't receive money from the EU, but at least people can work in our company if we can give room numbers and show that we have a real lab. So it's not that silent, there is something there, but then we're also building a new company building just starting in August, so we are, we are still growing. I also have to thank uh, several um, funding agencies, especially the European Union, to fund uh, several projects for tools development. I also want to give hints. Laura knows our hands-on course in Pichia. Uh, next one will take place in Graz in September. But we also have an announcement for the next Bicher conference. Uh, finally, after shifting it for two years, I think, the next Bicher conference will be in April 2020, right before Easter in San Diego in the Catamaran Hotel. That's our conclusions, and thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcast, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at www.qut.edu.au slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.